0: Banks are highly regulated public-private partnerships in an environment where new charters are excruciatingly hard to obtain, and as such remain de facto arms of the state. It has been and remains trivial to deputize them to carry out political objectives. If there was any doubt, it's now evident that the Obama administration and its successor in Biden's regime— are comfortable circumventing the First Amendment by engaging nominally private companies to do their dirty work. Get ready. We've got an article by Nick Carter from PirateWires.com on ChokePoint 2.0. This is the best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. what is up guys welcome back to bitcoin audible i am guy swan the guy who has read more about bitcoin than anybody else you know and we have got a great read a sobering read today um there is a lot going on in the space and i wanted to there's a number of different people talking about operation choke point 2.0 um and nick carter in this article uh, briefly describes choke point 1.0 for those of you who do not know, um, but this is a, an Obama era campaign to basically um, choke, choke out uh, from the financial system, from access to the financial system for quote unquote unsavory uh, uh, markets and industries that are not illegal. So like marijuana, the legal marijuana industry was uh, a good example. gambling, pornography like any of the the unwelcome or the the unapproved um, industries and they've started to use the exact same thing against political dissidents and this is the ever growing subjectivity of all of the rules and the inconsistencies and the total uh unreliable unsustainable whim of a political economy and how government regulation always devolves into utter Uh, lawlessness and chaos because it just becomes the subjective definition of whatever tyrant we currently have in charge and of course they're using this now against bitcoin and the crypto industry this is in choke point 2.0 and there's a lot of developments that have happened recently caitlin long has been talking about it quite a bit and she is super based about it like the some of the threads she's had in fact I i think i've got one saved that i wanted to cover on the show would have been great to do it in today's guy's take, but it was already like so long. I think I went on for like an hour and a half. Um, So get ready for a fun guy's take on this one. Um, Really quick, though, I don't want to lead too much. We'll get into the article. Uh, I just want to thank our amazing sponsors for today's show. And they are the fold card that gets you sats back on everything in your life. Imagine. Oh, and the PayPal bill pay is back. We will talk about that in the middle of the show but I am super excited! This is a way to get one percent back on everything that you do. The link is in the show notes, and of course, Swan Bitcoin, the onboarding service that is pure signal and no noise. Get you, get your business tied to Bitcoin. Get your long-term savings. You gotta check out Swan Bitcoin. If you go to swanbitcoin.com/guy, that also helps out the show. And then lastly, get yourself a cold card. Get yourself a hardware wallet. Secure your keys. Know that you own your Bitcoin. With Cold Kite, uh, with Cold Kite, (laughs) with Coin Kite and the Cold Card, or the Open Dime, or the Tap Signer. They have so many great products. Uh, 9% off with Code Bitcoin Audible. All of that great stuff will be available in the show notes for your convenience. So don't forget to check out our sponsors. They make this show happen. Uh, A huge thank you to them. And now we will get into today's read, and it's titled. Operation Choke Point 2.0 is underway, and crypto is in its crosshairs. By Nick Carter Detailing the Biden administration's coordinated, ongoing effort across virtually every U.S. financial regulator to deny crypto firms access to banking services. What began as a trickle is now a flood. The U.S. government is using the banking sector to organize a sophisticated, widespread crackdown against the crypto industry. And the administration's efforts are no secret. They are expressed plainly in memos, regulatory guidance, and blog posts. However, the breadth of this plan, spanning virtually every financial regulator, as well as its highly coordinated nature, has even the most steely-eyed crypto veterans nervous that crypto businesses might end up completely unbanked, stablecoins may be stranded and unable to manage flows in and out of crypto, and exchanges might be shut off from the banking system entirely. Let's dig in. For crypto firms, obtaining access to the onshore banking system has always been a challenge. Even today, crypto startups struggle mightily to get banks, and only a handful of boutiques serve them. This is why stablecoins like Tether found popularity early on, to facilitate fiat settlement where the rails of traditional banking were unavailable. However, in recent weeks, the intensity of efforts to ring-fence the entire crypto space and isolate it from the traditional banking system have ratcheted up significantly. Specifically, the Biden administration is now executing what appears to be a coordinated plan that spans multiple agencies to discourage banks from dealing with crypto firms. It applies to both traditional banks who would serve crypto clients and crypto-first firms aiming to get bank charters. It includes the administration itself, influential members of Congress, the Fed, the FDIC, the OCC, and the DOJ. Here's a recap of notable events concerning banks and the policy establishment in recent weeks. On December 6th, Senators Elizabeth Warren, John Kennedy, and Roger Marshall send a letter to crypto-friendly bank Silvergate scolding them for providing services to FDX and Alameda Research and lambasting them for failing to report suspicious activities associated with those clients. On December 7th, Signature, among the most active banks serving crypto clients, announces its intent to have deposits ascribed to crypto clients. In other words, they'll give customers their money back, then shut down their accounts, drawing its crypto deposits down from 23 billion at peak to 10 billion and to exit its stablecoin business. On January 3rd, the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC release a joint statement on the risks to banks engaging with crypto not explicitly banning banks' ability to hold crypto or deal with crypto clients, but strongly discouraging them from doing so on a safety and soundness basis. On January 9th, Metropolitan Commercial Bank, one of the few banks that serve crypto clients, announces a total shutdown of its crypto asset-related vertical. On January 9th, Silvergate stock falls to a low of $11.55 on bank run and insolvency fears, having traded as high as $160 in March 2022. On January 21st, Binance announces that due to policy at Signature Bank, they will only process user fiat transactions worth more than $100,000. On January 27th, the Federal Reserve denies CryptoBank Custodia's two-year application to become a member of the Federal Reserve system, citing safety and soundness risks. On January 27th, the Kansas City Fed branch denies custodia's application for a master account, which would have given it the ability to use wholesale payment services and to hold reserves with the Fed directly. On January 27th, the Fed also issues a policy statement which discourages banks from holding crypto assets or issuing stablecoins and broadens their authority to cover non-FDIC-insured, state-chartered banks, a reaction to Wyoming Special Purpose Depository Institutions, or SPDIs like Custodia, which can hold crypto alongside fiat for its banking customers. On January 27th, the National Economic Council releases a policy statement not explicitly banning banks from serving crypto clients, but strongly discouraging banks from transacting with crypto assets directly or maintaining exposure to crypto depositors. On February 2nd, the DOJ's fraud unit announces an investigation into Silvergate over their dealings with FTX and Alameda. On February 6th, Binance suspends U.S. dollar bank transfers for retail clients. Binance U.S. was not affected. On February 7th, the January 27th Fed Statement is entered into the Federal Register, turning the policy statement into a final rule with no congressional review or public notice and comment period. As of February 8th, Protegeau and Paxos's application to follow Anchorage and obtain full approval to become national trust banks are still outstanding, past the 18-month deadline, and appear likely to be imminently denied by the OCC. In sum, banks taking deposits from crypto clients, issuing stablecoins, engaging in crypto custody, or seeking to hold crypto as principal have faced nothing short of an onslaught from regulators in recent weeks. Time and again using the expression, safety and soundness, they've made it clear that for a bank, touching public blockchains in any way is considered unacceptably risky While neither the Fed, FDIC, or OCC statement, nor the NEC statement a few weeks later, explicitly banned banks from servicing crypto clients, the writing is on the wall, and the investigations into Silvergate are a strong deterrent to any bank considering aligning itself with crypto. What is clear now is that issuing stablecoins or transacting on public blockchains, where they could circulate freely like cash, is highly discouraged, or effectively prohibited it is equally evident that a bank-issued fiat token would only be acceptable to regulators if it were domiciled on a surveilled private blockchain. No unhosted wallets allowed. And perhaps most damagingly, the Fed's devastating denial of Wyoming SPDI bank custodia, as well as their policy statement, effectively ends any hopes that a state-chartered crypto bank might get access to the Federal Reserve System without submitting to FDIC oversight. Why might crypto entrepreneurs be wary of the FDIC? It traces back to Operation Chokepoint. Some in the crypto space believe that the recent attempts to ring-fence the crypto industry and cut off its connectivity to the banking system are reminiscent of this little-known Obama-era program. Beginning in 2013, Chokepoint was a scheme which sought to marginalize specific industries operating legally, not through lawmaking, but by applying pressure via the banking sector. The Obama Department of Justice had already cut its teeth with its successful effort to sideline the online poker space in 2011 and 2012, with threats issued to banks supporting poker companies. With Choke Point, the department decided to scale up its efforts and target other industries, starting with uncontroversial targets like payday lenders, then the DOJ coordinated with the FDIC and OCC to pressure member banks to redline, determine as too risky to do business with, certain legal but politically disfavored sectors, chief among them firearms manufacturers and adult entertainment. Banks and payment processors internalized this guidance, and even after the program was formally shuttered under Trump in 2017, its shadow lingered. Today, banks simply ascribe a higher risk to activities that they suspect might draw the government's ire, even if no specific guidance exists. Since Chokepoint nominally ended, using financial rails as an extrajudicial political cudgel has only become more popular. Under pressure, a number of banks walked away from the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2017. In 2018, Bank of America and Citigroup deplatformed firearms companies, and Bank of America began to report client firearms purchases to the federal government. In 2019, AOC announced her intent to marginalize private prisons through her seat on the House Financial Services Committee. Financial regulators are being asked to advance progressive causes, too. In 2021, the Democratic House passed the quote, Federal Reserve Racial and Economic Equity Act, which would have required the Fed to aim to, quote, "...eliminate disparities across racial and ethnic groups with respect to employment, income, wealth, and access to affordable credit." Gensler's SEC now maintains a controversial climate agenda, as does the Fed at smaller scale. Kamala Harris has deputized banks to advance a racial equity agenda, effectively imposing uneven demographic standards for credit provision. Today, it's even commonplace for explicitly conservative organizations like Gab or Parler and various malcontents and dissidents who fall afoul of regime politics to find themselves deplatformed from banks, fintech, and payment processors that they rely on to do business. For those who support this – I would invite you to imagine what financial inclusion or exclusion under a similarly zealous DeSantis administration might look like. Just build your own bank, right? Well, not if the Fed has anything to say about it. As evident with the stillborn Wyoming SPDI, the crypto industry tried that path and was utterly stymied. Banks are highly regulated public-private partnerships in an environment where new charters are excruciatingly hard to obtain and as such remain de facto arms of the state. It has been and remains trivial to deputize them to carry out political objectives. If there was any doubt, it's now evident that the Obama administration and its successor in Biden's regime are comfortable circumventing the First Amendment by engaging nominally private companies to do their dirty work. Anyone paying remote attention would have noticed the oddly close revolving door between monopolistic big tech firms and Obama and Biden's security state officials. And ever since Elon Musk leaked the Twitter files, it's nakedly clear that the U.S. government and its security apparatus use proxies at Twitter for overt censorship and narrative control. Twitter is just a private company, though, right? In 2017, Trump and Republican lawmakers like Representative Lutkemeyer were able to put a stop to choke point for a time, but it didn't last. One of the first moves from Biden's OCC was to undo Brian Brooks' fair access rule that prohibited political discrimination in banking. Biden's deputies picked up where Obama's regulators had left off. And now, after the time it took to digest Biden's executive orders, regulators are tightening the screw. Today, the outlook for banks remotely interested in crypto is precarious. Bankers tell me that crypto is toxic and the risks of engaging with the asset class aren't worth it. In the wake of the custodia decision, obtaining a new charter for a crypto bank looks extremely unlikely. Banking innovations at the state level, like Wyoming's SPDI for crypto banks, appear dead in the water. Federal charters for crypto firms with the OCC also look dead in the water. Traders, liquid funds, and businesses with crypto working capital are nervously examining their stablecoin portfolios and fiat access points, wondering if bank connectivity might be severed with little notice. Privately, entrepreneurs and CEOs in crypto tell me that they sense a regulatory noose tightening. As crypto-facing banks de-risk, younger and smaller firms will struggle to get banking, taking us back to the 2014-2016 period when fiat access for crypto businesses was at an extreme premium. Exchanges and other businesses that rely on fiat on-ramps are concerned that their few remaining bank partners will shut them off or institute draconian standards for scrutiny. As a venture capitalist operating at the early stage, I'm directly witnessing the chilling effects of this policy in action. Founders are reckoning with new uncertainties around whether they will be able to operate their businesses at all. So why the push by bank regulators now? The FTX collapse and its ensuing effects, particularly on Silvergate, provides much of the answer. Financial regulators weren't interested in FTX while the fraud was underway, with the exception of the SEC and its chairman, Ginsler, who had oddly close ties to the organization. But ever since the exchange failed in spectacular fashion, they are now contemplating ways to avoid the next such collapse. FTX as an offshore exchange was not directly supervised by financial regulators, aside from FTX US which was a marginal stub. So it was outside of their direct aegis. However, regulators believe that they might have a silver bullet in the fiat on and off ramps on which the industry relies. If they can choke off fiat access, they can marginalize the industry, on and offshore, without regulating it directly. In some key respects, Crypto Choke Point 2.0 differs from the original. It appears that the administration has learned from the efforts of its predecessors. In Chokepoint 1.0, guidance was mainly informal and involved backdoor, off-the-record conversations. Its main tool was the threat of investigation from the DOJ and FDIC if financial institutions didn't internalize the administration's risk standards. Because this was patently unconstitutional, it gave Republicans the collateral to ultimately repeal the program. In 2.0, everything is happening in plain sight, in the form of rulemaking, written guidance, and blogs. The current crypto crackdown is being sold as a safety and soundness issue for banks, and not merely a reputational risk issue. Jake Trevinsky of the Blockchain Association calls it regulation by blog post. No need to ask Congress for new laws if federal regulators can simply make policy, and in the case of the Fed, grow their scope and mandate by publishing guidance which dissuades banks from doing business with crypto. Custodia's Caitlin Long calls the Fed denial of her application, shooting the stallion to scatter the herd. As a consequence, the only banks willing to touch crypto at this point are smaller, less risk-averse ones, with more to gain from banking the industry. However, this means that crypto deposits and flows end up being substantial relative to their core business, which introduces concentration risks. Banks prefer not to have excessive exposure to single counterparties, or a depository base that is highly correlated in its flows. Silvergate felt this acutely with the bank run it suffered, and survived, post-FTX. While it's impressive that they were able to honor a 70% drawdown in their depository base... That episode will dissuade any banks looking to serve crypto clients that might face the same. And practically speaking, labeling crypto-facing banks high risk has four direct effects. It gives them a higher premium with the FDIC, they face a lower cap rate with the Fed, which inhibits their ability to overdraw, they face restrictions on other business activities, and management risks a poor examination score with their regulatory supervisors, which inhibits their ability to do M&A. So while some analysts like Wilson Sassini's Jess Chang have pointed out somewhat optimistically that banks are not explicitly barred from providing crypto custody or onboarding crypto clients, they still stand to get labeled high risk and face serious business hurdles as a result. Some might be sympathetic to regulators' attempts to insulate the banking system from the vicissitudes of the crypto space. But thus far, crypto's various disasters haven't produced any meaningful contagion, The industry had a full-blown credit crisis in 2022, with virtually every major lender going bankrupt, but the damage was contained. The worst fallout in the banking space was suffered by Silvergate, which suffered an $8 billion drawdown, but survived. No onshore fiat-backed stablecoin suffered any meaningful adverse effects, despite the massive crypto sell-off in 2021 and 2022. They functioned as intended. And no contagion spilled into traditional finance via mass selling of treasuries, something officials have historically felt might be a key transmission channel. As Biden enters the second half of his term, his crackdown on crypto banking has deflated hopes for a regulatory reproachment in the U.S. Many crypto entrepreneurs now tell me that they're waiting for 2025 and a punitive DeSantis regime for things to turn. Some can't wait that long and are shuttering their plans for businesses which involve any type of regulatory approval, especially with regards to bank charters. Regulators are effectively picking winners, with larger, more established crypto firms able to hang on to their bank relationships while newer ones are shut out. Meanwhile, other jurisdictions are making a bid for their business. Hong Kong has adopted a friendlier tone once again, as has the UK. The UAE and the Saudis are looking to attract crypto firms, and U.S. regulators can scarcely afford to forget what happened with FTX, in which they curtailed the business activities of onshore exchanges, effectively pushing U.S. individuals into the waiting claws of SBF. If bank regulators continue their pressure campaign, they risk not only losing control of the crypto industry, but ironically, increasing risk by pushing activity to less sophisticated jurisdictions, less able to manage genuine risks that may emerge. Nick Carter. Author's note, thanks to Austin Campbell for his feedback on this story. All right, and that wraps up the piece by Nick Carter. Uh, Let's take a moment right here and hit our uh, sponsor for the day, and then we will jump back into a guy's take. Holy crap, the bill pay with the fold card and PayPal is back. So this is uh, something that I had used uh, uh, quite a bit, and I know a lot of the Audionauts um, had used it, and recently with all these crazy banking things and everything going on, is PayPal had shut it down for some reason. It no longer worked with the Fold card. So uh, some of the credit cards that, granted, I had paid them off completely. So I wasn't getting the, I wasn't having to do the payment. Um, and but other people in the audio knots noticed because they were able to do their mortgage and stuff through this. A lot of if you haven't done mortgage with your debit card, if you haven't done like credit card payments, if you haven't done like car payments, like all of these things, Apple Card payments, like all of these things are available up there. And I have used most of them. Definitely check it out. You can use the PayPal bill pay with your fold card and get 1% back on your mortgage. On literally everything you do with this card. And then do not forget that you can get gift cards. I did some traveling recently. Uber gift cards, I got 3% back when I went out to the Swan Salon. It was so great. It's it just, man, the amount of sats that I stack. I'm at 0.21 Bitcoin. I'm at 21 million sats now. Just from using this debit card, that's like six grand, sixty-four hundred dollars. I don't even know. Understand? I didn't buy Bitcoin. That that amount of Bitcoin I did not buy. I just got it from using the fold card. If you have not, there's a link right in the show notes, and you get twenty thousand sats for free just for signing up. Free sats every day on the spin wheel. Seriously, check them out if you haven't. And then of course, Swan Bitcoin. I always feel uncomfortable trying to help people get into Bitcoin because some of the popular services like Coinbase are the worst options possible. And when they tell me they use Coinbase, I just want to be like, just seriously, just close that account and go to Swan. I just always know when I tell people to go to Swan Bitcoin, to get into Bitcoin, to connect their business, to connect their retirement account, you can now set up an IRA in minutes and start saving tax free. You set up a long-term savings plan. You automatically purchase and automatically withdraw. I know that when I send people to SWAN, they are not going to be led astray, that they are not going to be encouraged to buy Shiba coin or some other dog meme coin or trade on a bunch of crap tokens, or that they're not going to be stuck in some giant insolvent crypto Ponzi scheme like FTX. In fact, if any one of them had been using that, they would have gotten the message a hundred different ways from Corey Clipston and from the people at SWAN warning that they should get their money out of FTX, out of these crypto, uh, insolvent crypto Ponzi schemes. And a lot of people did because they used SWAN. This is why I always just tell people to go to swanbitcoin.com guy, which actually my link helps out the show a little bit. Um, and, but whether or not it's before they're sponsoring the show, while they're sponsoring the show and after they're done sponsoring the show. I will still send people to Swan Bitcoin because I just know it's a safe place to send them. My link is right in the show notes for those of you who aren't using them yet. so now it's time to get into a very lengthy and quite the guy's take for today's read so there's something in this regarding like the separation or the attempt to culturally separate Bitcoin from crypto um is that you know, we talked about this in the Bitcoin maximalism episode, and particularly a history of Bitcoin Mac- maximalism with Jameson Lopp, which is a really good piece and a really good discussion. I think um, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, whether you are a anti, you you're you know against the whole aggressive Bitcoin maximalism ideals, so to speak, or whether you are a Bitcoin maximalist. Um, what I, what I consider myself a rational Bitcoin maximalist or you're an aggressive, crazy Bitcoin maximalist, whatever you are, I think I think there's a really honest and useful discussion in that piece. So I will I will recommend that one again and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But one of the things that Jameson Lop brings up that I think was a really good point was that, you know, for all this time that we've tried to protect people from crypto and we've, you know, tried to make it clear that they are scams, and the the sheer audacity and obviousness of the the crypto nonsense that goes on, like like just trying so desperately to point it out to people so that new noobs don't get roped in, it doesn't work. It doesn't seem to work. Um, it has been ineffective. Like all of the Bitcoin maximalists that have come in in the last couple of years have literally been because they all got burned in crypto and then started looking at Bitcoin again. It wasn't because, uh, despite our best efforts, it wasn't because we called everything in crypto a scam. They were still largely being introduced through crypto. And then they see Bitcoin maximalists sounding crazy because look at all these great people and all these projects and all these things getting done. Um, And, you know, all these psycho little Bitcoiners in the corner just screaming that it's all scams. And then it all blows up, and then they're like, eh, "Maybe what's what's this Bitcoin thing?" So it seems like the same, the course, the the pathway to Bitcoin maximalism or Bitcoin an, a and a Bitcoin only focus into recognizing what Bitcoin really is seems to still be the same as it's always been. Get burned in crypto, and figure out that either either shun everything entirely and just be like, "I'm totally done with this space and everything in it." Or just kind of have this like back of your mind. I remember that Bitcoiners were all saying these were scams. So what was going on? And I mean, you know, maybe that's the best that we've got, right? Is that after the fact people wake up and they remember that they were warned. I don't know. You know, people are pretty stubborn, but regardless, I think it's a, it's a point to reflect on the strategy, so to speak on the perspective and the stance that we take. If, it's not really protecting anybody. If it's not really working, you know, what, what can we do? But in that sense, in that same sense, there's also an element of, if we at least can partially dissociate, then hopefully we, hopefully as a community, for all the faults and for all the absurdities, hopefully we've done that to some degree in people's heads, is that the attacks on you know, securities regulations and, uh, or through securities regulations and on trading and exchanges and these things might actually have less effect on the Bitcoin only companies, largely because it's explicitly attacking um, activities or explicitly talking about the risk of activities that isn't nearly as prevalent in the Bitcoin only industry. Like, maybe that's like a little bit of like just silly optimism on my part or maybe it's a little bit naive but there could be this this kind of like trying to set the base so that when the shit hits the fan people are there is some sort of an element and i think a cultural understanding or or something in the canon of all of this industry and space that bitcoin is different Whether or not that's because of us, whether or not that's because, you know, Bitcoin maximalists have sang that tune so loudly um, or not is hard to say. But I think that that little thread is there and that might end up helping us that they have to go after Bitcoin differently. And I think that's a lot of what this mining crackdown and things are. And it's funny, Nick Carter, I mean, you know, with respect, I still like a lot of Nick Carter's writing, but. I love that he doesn't mention Bitcoin like he he seems to have gone full Brian Armstrong here is that, I mean, he's got a great article. I, I I, really enjoyed this piece and I think he's pulled together a lot of really useful information, but it's like Brian Armstrong just like really going out of his way to not say the word Bitcoin. I mean, maybe I'm just projecting here, but I don't know. It's a little funny, but I want to talk about a number of things that he brings up, which are Really great points. And, you know, people don't know about Operation Choke Point. It's not common knowledge. But there's a quote that he has, says, Since Choke Point nominally ended, again, this was in 2017, using financial rails as an extrajudicial political cudgel has only become more popular. Under pressure, a number of banks walked away from the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2017, in 2018, Bank of America and Citigroup deplatformed firearms companies and Bank of America began to report client firearm purchases to the federal government. In 2019, AOC announced her intent to marginalize private prisons through her seat on the House Financial Services Committee. End quote. So this is the inevitable result of the increasing centralization of the banking and financial system. And obviously it's deep deep co-option through the government and political apparatus these are it's almost even hard to call them quasi-state institutions because if they do not go along with everything the state says they essentially risk going out of business which means that they are either they are an arm for the state or they simply cannot they're not allowed to do business and the more and more centralized this becomes the more the more clear and deep the truth of that statement is throughout the entire industry and the fact that there are these centralization pressures from multiple different angles and from the widespread insolvency of the entire financial system it's just it just becomes so easy To cut people off from the system when there are so few levers to pull to do it. That you're able to effectively put people into a soft political prison without any due process, without charging of any crime, without anyone breaking any law, even needing any direct action or knowing who it is that you are attacking. It's just broad, sweeping governance by threat. By using the monetary rails as a weapon against everyone and everything considered undesirable or unwelcome. It's just political institutions and committees and bureaucrats making subjective judgments about what's going on in the economy and just eviscerating whatever they don't like. It's just tyranny with extra steps and kind of fake-looking restraint. It's theatrical restraint. The problem is, is this is definitely one of those gradually then suddenly situations for them. When your entire monetary system becomes a political weapon instead of an economic network, well, then the economic network falls apart. It kills the economic network. It kills the engine that makes any of this useful or valuable or meaningful in any sense. If your monetary and financial network isn't doing the job of monetary and financial coordination but it's simply doing the service of political control and tyrannical abuse well then what happens is everybody ends up poor and the quote powerful end up having control over a steaming pile of worthless politically manipulated culturally rotten unproductive meaningless shit this is economic suicide by political control this is the end result of their system of ethics, which I refer back to yesterday's episode on uh, the virtue of self- selfishness, the, the, uh, the objectivist ethic, to, to break down, to understand the anti-human philosophy that they are espousing and that allows them to live as looters and thugs while believing that they hold some moral high ground. And I urge you to reject it fully and deeply consider what it means. And not not their control, not their system, the ethic That they use as an excuse that allows that system, that makes it appear, or that gives them the moral authority to create this system, which has these results. If an ethic enables this sort of system to exist, this type of control and bureaucratic threats and looting of the economic system, of everybody's basic individual rights in pursuit of happiness, well then you should definitely question the ethics that allow that excuse to be possible. But, you know, the state of all of this is also an indication, I think, of like why you can't walk these things back um, or why it's so insanely difficult. You you know, how quickly, like how insanely unreliable that, uh, and and we'll talk about this again in a minute um, because it's more directly related to another quote further down in the article, but how inconsistent and utterly open to shifting with just the whims of whoever is in control politically statist centralized regulation is. Is that the argument from statists is always that you have to have regulation or the industry is just going to go wild and we're going to have anarchy and you know everything's just going to be chaos. And it's like, no, that's what you get with government regulation. That is exactly what it produces. But we'll come back to that because I want to hit that point uh, a little bit more in depth. But there's a quote that says, and this, I think, is more aligned with the conversation about ethics and the morality of the situation. It says, quote, and, you know, Nick Carter is talking directly to um, anybody who is reading this article and or listening to this article and thinks, oh, well, that doesn't seem so bad. So, so quote, for those who support this, I would invite you to imagine what financial inclusion or exclusion under a similarly zealous DeSantis administration might look like. Just build your own bank, right? Well, not if the Fed has anything to say about it. Now, I get, I get that. I think this is a great point, and this is something that I always try to bring up, because some people are so just narcissistic that they cannot fathom, they cannot think about the problem of a thing outside of the their subjective desires or their subjective benefit or um uh valuation mechanism because their ethic isn't independent of it it's just the opposite side of things like a great example actually is there was a state recently i think i heard this on the tim pot uh, tim cast um is uh uh, and I don't know I don't know what state it is, and I don't know the degree of like where this passed or whatever, but I just think it's the completely wrong mindset is the idea that the Ten Commandments will be posted and taught in all of their schools. This was at the state level. Now, here's the thing is that if you agree with the Ten Commandments and you actually embrace what the Ten Commandments mean, and the values that they attempt to espouse or they, they attempt to instill. You would know that centralized schooling and forcing it down everybody's throats is neither in line with the Christian morality, nor is it going to be effective. It's just doing the exact opposite of what the woke ideology has done. It's just trying to force it down the throats of the, of the kids in, the, in a giant centralized, just awful awful garbage shit schooling system to get them to think the way that you want them to think. If the values are right, then open discussion, free discussion and free markets in education will lean toward them, will allow people to, to, to discover them and have a journey toward them. And then it will actually be meaningful that people have values, that people actually develop a strong moral foundation which means that this is not this is the exact opposite this is where republicans do the stoop that do the exact same thing as the left just in a different direction but the ethic isn't any different it's still what what they should have done is allowed school choice what they should have done is let the parent decide where they are going to take their tax dollars to spend on education which means they are actually reinforcing what they have done is actually reinforced the idea of more explicit top-down control and cultural forced education about what they should think and what they should believe that makes it completely hypocritical for them to d- to then criticize the woke for doing the same thing. They, they're setting the precedent. They're reinforcing the very idea that it's okay to do that. It's just like this one comment that Nick Carter talks about. It's like, if... If the left can't see or would be aghast at the idea of DeSantis using these tools or Trump using these tools against them, well, then the right, the Republicans need to do the same damn thing and think about what it would be like if they they started publishing the communist manifesto in all these schools. They essentially make it a permanent political fight over who gets to decide what the next generation learns, what gets forced down their throats. And I just can't imagine anything that is less aligned with the Christian ethic. Maybe it's just that most people don't internalize. You know, it's like one of those things that everything gets watered down to kind of like its mottos and its meaning is lost. And I think that's a lot of what has happened to religion is the, the importance, you know, the stories get retold and modified and changed and translated and this king gets to put his twist on it and push his subjective biases into it and all of these things and over time like it all of its meaning starts getting washed out and then it turns into you know just like these base mottos and these claims that are hard to apply or they just end up being you know some collective guilt mechanism and fail to recognize the the genuine knowledge the incredible the incredible story of what it means to be human that like the stories in the bible actually entail or or inform of and i say this as not a religious person by the way and you know there's there's a lot of christian bitcoiners out there that i have a lot of respect for and it's funny i went through a uh, uh atheist phase during college um, where I was very much kind of like in the Ayn Rand camp. Like I love her objectivist ethics. I think she does a great job at deducing morality from like a rational foundation. Um, but her, uh, but I think her aggressive um, and just like um, unbelievable disdain for the idea of, I guess it's like a god, a higher power. It's it's hard to define exactly what is meant by that because there's so much baggage like everybody has their own application of it like some people it's literally like a dude in the sky with a beard who just like makes judgments and things and uh, I think it's more I think it's better understood as a fact of existence of the fact that you know I think we can literally find God so to speak and this is a whole conversation that I didn't intend to get into but we can find God in the fact that the universe creates life from nothing. Like, I don't even think that evolution and religion are at odds. Um, I think our journey for religious truth or for what the meaning of life and the universe is, should embrace it. I, th- I think they should they aren't at odds. And I know this might trigger a lot of people, and I don't mean to, you know offend anybody, but you know, there's conflicting ideas. know our integrity or um strength as humans. Or as, uh, as our mental fortitude is in the ability to entertain ideas that disagree with us and not falling to pieces. So if this gets you worked up, take a breather for a second. And maybe this would be worth an entire guy's take on its own. I don't know. It feels a little irrelevant. But, you know, I think there's something in the fact that order persists. And that this is a natural reality. And that there's no escaping it that everywhere in the universe life can exist, that I think it will. And I think every time we find these horizons as a species, that, you know, first it's literally the horizon, then it's the ocean, there couldn't be anything over there, and then it's a new continent, and then it's the planet, and then it's the solar system, and then suddenly we're not the center of the solar system, and then it's the galaxy, and then it's the universe. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and broader and broader. We, We insist on trying to... Keep the old Overton window of our religious understanding of what we interpret as our connection with the broader, a broader existence. You know, like uh, Joe Rogan talks about like uh, with number of his guests, like the religious experience that you have on like psychedelics and these things and how so many people have like extremely similar uh, experiences. And they have these same sensations of being connected to everything and all of this stuff, and I think there's an element of like whether whether you want to see it in a religious or spiritual context, or whether you want to see it in the fact that the brain, the human body, the organism, life itself emerges in harmony with its environment like like everything about the pathways and things in your brain about how you think and Where you see contradiction and what, what frustrates you when you're trying to think about reason and, and when you come up with mental contradictions and how it like causes that frustration and that anger that this idea doesn't line up with this other idea, it is literally your brain, the, the the pathways in your brain that have developed as a response to existence, to just this proof of work of beating against reality over and over. And these tiny continuous modifications that we are a reflection of truth of reality, like maybe to come up with an analogy that hmm, what would be a good analogy? Okay. Think about like a river or a, a tributary, like a, like a, um, a, a drainage area for a river or a creek or something is that these things are shaped by the water. The ripples in the sand underneath the water, the the shape of the rocks, the the gullies that are that are drained out down the sides of the mountains and in through the valley, these things are a consequence of the water. They aren't the water itself but they are in tune with the water. They are in harmony with the water because the water shaped them. In that same sense, reality shaped life. Like, life cannot be at odds with reality or it dies. It, is, it becomes disorder. It is only the order that harmonizes with existence that then sustains itself and grows and changes and continues to expand and accelerate and discover new things and acquire new knowledge. Now, whether you want to think about that in a spiritual sense, or you want to think about that in a purely, like, kind of numeric, mathematical, scientific sense, just kind of like a separate from it, that's a fascinating truth. Like, that's an insanely beautiful thing, that inside our own minds might be the logic of the universe. In fact, almost necessarily so. That's why reason exists in the first place, and where it conflicts with reality it dies. Where it develops a poisonous evil ethics, it dies. Where it aligns, where it adopts and embraces and lives by the ethics and the moral, the moral foundation that supports and values life, it survives and thrives. I don't know, this was, this was a huge tangent and this is like hours and hours of discussion and something that I've, been fascinated with has always been like this kind of like secondary constant journey for me since this was all actually to point out the fact that I think Ayn Rand's disdain for um, religious uh, morality, I think is, or or religious uh, doctrine I think is more attuned to, or a response to the kind of shallow Christianity that you see a lot of people have that they, they repeat the mottos and they, they, Say the words and they tell the stories, but they don't know what any of it means, you know, and it's inevitable that everything kind of becomes that and even it's kind of funny that there's actually stories in the Bible that say this is what happens to all ideas that it becomes this dumb watered down version and people don't understand it and that you know Isaiah's job is to continue to speak the truth is to continue to to speak the depth of what it actually means and the people that need to hear it and the people that matter will hear you whether you know it or not and it is still your job your obligation your responsibility to keep speaking that truth that you know even if you never see anyone actually respond or appear to listen that they did hear you that the right people heard you and they took it with them and even if they don't remember where they heard it or why they heard it they apply it it spreads and it becomes you know it's Isaiah's thankless uh a forever job but i think the shallow version of all of that the 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 thing that it becomes it inevitably becomes all mainstream or broad normalized ideas become for the bulk of the people is What Ayn Rand is rejecting, um, or so deeply rejected, so to speak. And, you know, there's something also in the fact that any idea, any religion, anything that you dig deep enough into, there's something interesting there. You know, like, I can even follow the logic of, like, I read uh, Klaus Schwab's, um, I mean, just Caveat here, Um, I think his ethics are garbage and he has no moral foundation for anything, but his logic, the way he thinks and the way he thinks about the future of humanity and stuff makes sense in the context that he lays out when you actually weigh it against an ethic, when you when you weigh it against the moral foundation, if you actually kind of believe that like sacrificial human, like we must live for our neighbor and like you know life is life is a burden and the, you know only only if we're doing something for only if we're sacrificing are we doing good if we accept those values it's hard to have a moral foundation to argue against it. It's kind of like the, the like arguing against self-ownership and arguing against the fact that everybody has individual rights. Well, you destroy your moral foundation for arguing why slavery is bad. It just becomes this arbitrarily subjective thing that like black people aren't supposed to be enslaved. It's like, well, why? What's your moral foundation? It's like, well, it's because it's bad. It's like, oh, it's just popular. Like because like you don't have anything stronger than that. That self-ownership, that property rights, that, that owning your own self, your own thoughts, and that you being in charge of your life, that you don't have that moral foundation and you absolve that to to what? To pay reparations or whatever it is? You just killed everything about the moral and ethical reasons why this is a horrible, disgusting thing. You absolved, you literally just wiped out your foundation for The prosperity of an entire generation, of an entire renaissance in human thought and in individual human rights that was an explosion to finally end slavery as a political institution. You undid that entirely so that you can pay somebody a thousand dollar check a month because that's subjectively useful for the time being. And you're going to allot everybody into their racial groups and separate, resegregate everything. And we'll have certain rules for people with this color skin or this sexual orientation or whatever. Like, you are, like, that's the exact ideology of the KKK. That's the exact ideology that we spent so long fighting against. And it's exactly what this choke point 2.0 shit is. It's extrajudicial. It's got nothing to do with crime. It's just creating people in groups, in ideologies, and separating them and giving them different sets of rules. And when going back to the comment, the tweet, I mean, the the tweet, the, the quote that actually started this whole random tangent, says, for those who support this, I would invite you to imagine what financial inclusion or exclusion under a similarly zealous DeSantis administration might look like. Just build your own bank, right? Well, not if the Fed has anything to say about it. That quote, if we have to see and only Can we see how it would be used against us before we see that this might actually be a bad idea or that it might be morally wrong when used against us? And we cannot recognize that when it's used against anyone that we subjectively even slightly don't value as our top concern. I might ask that we should really look in the mirror How devoid of a moral foundation do we have to be to excuse a gross violation of basic liberty or literally destroying people's lives, destroying industries, choking entire sectors of the economy and of people trying to provide value to others and make ends meet according to their values, according to their hopes and the pursuit of their happiness, all because we just kind of like don't agree with it or it's not the decision that we would make? It's not subjectively something that we value, so fuck them. Their rights, their entire lives, their access to the financial system, their ability to make payments, their ability to enact or or to engage in the economic system at all, which sustains everything about our lives, is just kind of like whatever. That the only way for us to recognize that this is bad is to imagine DeSantis telling us that we can't post something liberal on Twitter. If we can't understand why something might be bad unless it's us who are directly attacked, then maybe we need to work on our own narcissism and greed a little bit. Maybe we need to be a little bit more humble, to have a tiny bit of empathy for the people who disagree with us, for the people around us who do not live exactly like we do. I know, it seems like a crazy idea, especially for the lunatics in normie land who just swallow anything that the morally repugnant establishment just vomits in their direction. Anywho... That went off the rails a little bit. Another quote says, "Um, it has been and remains trivial to deputize them. He's talking about the banks um, to deputize them, to carry out political objectives. If there was any doubt, it's now evident that the Obama administration and its successor in Biden's regime are comfortable circumventing the First Amendment by engaging nominally private companies to do their dirty work. I think the thing to point out here is how utterly cowardly all this is. You know, how roundabout and pathetic the attempts are. And honestly, I almost, there's part of me that just wishes they would speed up their suicide. But if this is where things are inevitably headed, I don't, I don't know. You know, I go back and forth, like I'm a collapsitarian one week, and then I'm a please, slow, resistant transition the next week. I, I, I like there's this gradually and suddenly when it comes to these things. And I think there's going to be a tipping point where just the overwhelming friction of the banking system will kill it all by itself. Like a couple of exa- examples recently is, um, you know, we were trying to move, uh, some Bitcoin and using cash app, uh, to, you know, make some large payments or whatever a family member was. And, uh, if just trying to do some basic moves. And because, you know, we didn't immediately send it to um, a separate wallet, it just seemed like Cash App was going to be like an easy place to put this, right? Now, this wasn't my decision. If, if, you know, I would have been in charge, I would have known that this was bad. But it's not obvious, you know, like most people don't realize these things happen. And there's like huge, there's like incredible restrictions and time restrictions on moving any of this money. Like if you move Bitcoin to Cash App, which i I value Cash App. like I like them as an onboarding uh, service or whatever. But if you're trying to send Bitcoin peer-to-peer, like sending it to somebody else, it's like $2,000 a week is the max. And then to send money to the app, it's $10,000. And then to send money out, it's $2,500. Which means that if you send $10,000 of Bitcoin to Cash App, it's literally just stuck Like you've just trapped your money. You can't withdraw it. It takes like a month to withdraw that amount and you can't send it to anybody. And you even hit a $5,000 cap on selling it and cashing it out. And this is all attached to ridiculous financial regulations that as soon as you touch the legacy financial system, all the benefits of Bitcoin disappear. Like it just becomes this crazy, slow, expensive walled garden. And the walls are getting higher. The expenses are getting higher. And the delays are getting longer. Like after SVB blew up um, with their, uh, you know, withdrawal, their bank run crisis. ACHs for me have slowed down to a crawl. What usually took, which actually with a caveat that the last one that I did actually went back to the normal speed. So it was overnight. So I don't know if this is a permanent set of conditions or what is what the hell is going on? But it was almost, it was like two days after SVB happened. Uh, I usually move money to Fold through, like I have a normal bank account that doesn't do anything except move to Apple Cash and then move to Fold. So everything just gets sent to my Fold card. But the ACH usually lasted twenty four hours t- tops. Like I would, I would, uh, you know, move the money to Apple Cash and then submit the ACH, and you know, in the afternoon and the next morning it would show up. That has turned into like I was actually doing this with the Audio knots and trying to see how long it was going to take. And I said it was on a Wednesday. It was Wednesday afternoon, still during banking hours. So I should have gotten the clearing of the update of their uh you know, their uh, their credits and debits for the bank that I was leaving from that afternoon, because it clears at five o'clock, right? Or shortly after. I think it was five thirty maybe. But the and this is why it takes multiple multiple days sometimes to move because uh, especially if you're talking about overseas and stuff because you have like a you have your local bank your base bank you have your like regional regional, and like clearing and settlement bank and then you have the other local bank that is popping up on uh, with that settlement and a lot of times those take a day apiece so it's like the end of the first day and then the second day opens uh, does the Federal Reserve or the settlement bank the middle institution and then the third day or I guess it's technically the second day, the next day. So there's like one full day gap um, between. So it's like if it's Wednesday, uh, sometimes it lands on Friday. But whatever it is with Apple Cash or, you know, some of these fintech companies that have popped up, they've gotten a lot of workarounds and it has sped up a little bit. Uh, the ACH that I would normally do, I would put it through Wednesday afternoon. And uh, as long as it was before five o'clock, Nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, it goes through and it's in my fold account. And this is to do it without any fee or anything. But I did this on Wednesday and I published it in the audio notes. It was like four o'clock in the afternoon, I think. Thursday, nothing. Friday, nothing. Saturday and Sunday it's the freaking weekend. Banking system just doesn't, I, I don't even know. It's 2023. The fact that the banking system doesn't work on the weekends is mind-bogglingly idiotic. Like The, the, the amount of retardation there, I just cannot fathom. I mean, what if your emails didn't send over the weekend? It's money. It's money for crying out loud. Anyway, Jesus. So nothing happened on Saturday and Sunday. Still not on Monday. Tuesday, it finally landed. Five business days. Now, the most recent one that just I did two days ago or yesterday. Yeah, two days ago and then it came through yesterday was a 24-hour move. Um, It was... Early in the morning on Tuesday and it landed about middle of the day Wednesday. So fingers crossed that it's speeding back up and that whatever this like month long of like that wasn't the only ACH. This was this was common like this was like I did three or four over this period since SVB and it's just been so slow. In fact, one of my literally had to call the bank and be like, what is going on? Please like push this through or like look into things. I don't know what it was. Um, And uh, and I also had like, like suddenly transfers that I've been doing like constantly were getting declined. They were getting rejected. I mean, it's been a hell like the last couple of months since SVB trying to deal with the banking system. I don't know if they're just like they all got their panties in a bunch or suddenly like all of their accounting systems are crap because they don't they don't know who to trust. And so they're not clearing very well. Something, something has been up and it's been a pain in my ass. But I'll tell you another story. I uh, went to a bank not too long ago. This was last year sometime. I talked about it on the show actually at the time. No clue what episode it was. Um, But I had to, I think I was depositing or I was, oh no, oh no. I was trying to move between two accounts that I had that were mine, both, at the same bank and the only way I could do it without it taking like three days and I mean, Jesus, for some reason, it would not let me connect my bank accounts. And I I think it was because we figured out it was because my wife was on one of the bank accounts and not on the other. So she had to be physically in the bank, which is incredibly inconvenient for us, but she had to be physically in the bank to like approve and fill out some form that I had already filled out like a couple of times, whatever, doesn't matter, but I'm in the bank. A, a woman comes in with, uh, I think she said something about like a laundromat or something. Like she, she owned a business and, uh, an elderly woman. And she was, she brought in a bunch of coins and she was trying to get them converted to cash. And they literally turned while I'm standing right there. Um, these are the only two people that came in by the way. So this is the old woman first. Um, and uh, she came in and they turned her away. They said, oh, well, you can use like the Coinstar thing and like directly like there's like one in Food Lion down the road or something like that. Like this is money. Like This is what the bank does. They turn one money into another type of type of money and they facilitate accounts and payments. That's their whole job. And they told this woman to go to a coin star, which is going to take eight percent of her money to change it from pennies, nickels, dimes, and quarters into dollars. <laughs> <sighs> I'm like a little bit like I'm I'm kind of like looking at my the bank teller like what? And then another guy comes in just after her. So she leaves like Kind of a little bit, bit despondent and didn't put up a fight. She was like totally nice. And I'm just like, lady, yell at these people. Or don't yell, but share your disgust. Like ask the attendant, ask the bank uh, the bank teller if this makes sense to them. That's one thing I, I try to do when I find myself in these situations is I, I try to express my feelings or my opinion of it without being mad at the person. You know, as somebody who has worked in customer service, like I can, it's good to identify with that other person and know that the bank teller did not do this. You know, like I don't want, I don't want to be mad at the bank teller, but like I will literally ask them and this happened a lot during the COVID stuff. And particularly when my dad was in the hospital is that like, I would ask a nurse and the nurse would be like, I remember we were the three of us, my, uh, my mom, my brother and me were up in the waiting room and it was like only two people are allowed are allowed in the waiting room. And this waiting room, I shit you not is like a football field and there's nobody in it it is literally us three and they like like the manager and the security people came over and said only two people are allowed to be in here and uh only for like some subset of hours and you're supposed to like social distance and all of this stuff and i i literally asked her like what is your name and she's like nancy or something like that i was like nancy does this make sense to you look around Look around this. We are we're our family. Are you literally suggesting that we are at risk of catching covid from each other because we are sitting next to each other while our dad is having surgery where he may literally die and you're going to tell me to leave? You're going to make one of us leave that one of us is not allowed to see him. And it was so funny to watch them squirm because. They could not give me an answer. They could not give me any logic. And I kept asking them. They said, well, the policy is. And I said, no, Nancy, look at me. Does this make sense to you? Are you legitimately arguing that the risk is different? And I got her to say no, that the rule is stupid, but that this is important for us to keep the authority in order and you can't break the rules and all of this bullshit. But what I wanted from them was to say, yes, this is stupid and that we are just enforcing it because that's policy. And so I take the kind of same tact with the bank tellers and stuff is like, I asked him, I was like, does that not seem silly? It like, you know, imagine an email company that just said, Oh, well, we're not going to send your email today or for this during out during these hours or something. Like I do not hide my opinion. I will not be mad at them. And I do not want them. If they are uncomfortable, that's fine. That, that doesn't bother me a whole lot. Um, As long as they know that I am not directing it at them. But I clearly want them to, I absolutely want them to know how absurd I think the situation is. And I think showing that, expressing that makes them go think about it. I see them. I see the wheels turning in their brains when I have this conversation with people. Because I think most people are just so stuck. And there's actually a quote just a little bit down that I think is so indicative of this entire situation. and The culture that has arisen that people are... They're afraid. They're literally afraid to think for themselves. And for good reason, everything about our system, our education system even, is designed to set up to make people dependent, to make them wait for permission, to make them afraid to move or do anything. And I am at the point, I am at the point where I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to orient my life around people who accept Bitcoin and people who don't, that's, Um, or around people who accept Bitcoin and away from organizations, companies that don't. And I understand that that means, uh, that means I have to make sacrifices, that I have to change the way I do things, and that I have to bring up and start likely uncomfortable conversations with everybody I work with, but I'm going to do that. So uh, another example of this, and it seems to have worked. Um, And I've, it sucks because I almost didn't, Decided we weren't going to do this. But now I'm kind of thinking I want to support them because of this. Um, so I had a guy come out to um, uh, do a fence. We are trying to do a fence in the backyard for the dogs. Um, so that they can actually just hang out there. Especially like as we uh, get working on the basement again. I really hate not just like having a place that they can just run around and have to themselves. So we wanted a fence. Uh, they came out and did a quote. Talked to the guy. Really good guy. Fun to chat with. We talked a little bit about... Like, you know, like like the, the state of the world and stuff, but just a little bit, you know. It's like one of those things that, you know, it's an uncomfortable topic a lot of times, especially anything that seems overtly political. And you want to test the waters, right? You don't know. You got to feel everybody out. And I tend to just kind of like drop little seeds of like my opinion. I'm a little bit less. <laughs> I'm not really closed off about it. And I at least feel like I'm pretty rational. I mean, probably I talk to people all the time that think I'm absolutely batshit crazy, but I'm okay with that. That doesn't bother me. So I'm talking with this guy and I'm like dropping those little things. It's like, oh well, you know, I just don't trust the banks even slightly. And it's funny to hear him like kind of like he was he was definitely accepting of it like a little bit without him getting totally engaged in the conversation. But we did we did have a conversation. It was just like we lightly touched on that. But mostly we just talked about business. Um, and then we were texting back and forth and it turns out he needed, um, so to, to do this fence, I just didn't, I don't want to go into debt. I don't want to leverage or anything. I'm sick of it. Um, and so I was going to sell Bitcoin and then just trying to stack it hard again to get it all back. But because of that, that meant that I was going to have to move from Bitcoin, which is where I want and do all of my business and all of my stuff to the banking system. Because I do not have enough money to build a fence in the banking system. I do not like having that much money tied up in the financial system at any time it scares the living crap out of me. So I was going to have to move this to Cash App, sell it for like a 1.5% or 2% fee, do an ACH withdrawal to my bank, and then an ACH withdrawal twofold. And this is at a time when... These ACHs are taking five business days. So I was like, screw this. I'm going to make my spiel. And I say, listen, you can save me money. We can save you money. And we can do this in a matter of minutes. Setting up on OpenNode takes no time at all. And they can accept Bitcoin directly. And they can just convert it straight to dollars if they want. It's a 1% fee for, I think, any amount and because they wanted a deposit that was pretty steep, the deposits and construction stuff has gotten have gotten crazy. Um, but because they wanted a steep deposit, a sixty percent deposit, in you know he wanted to come do the measurements and uh, uh, fix some of the measurements that we did because we changed it um, the next day, and that I would pay him. Well, I can't. It's gonna take me two weeks to get the freaking money. It seems like, and it's gonna cost me a chunk of change. So I made my spiel. I even said that you know I'm happy to post out. I mean he doesn't know if I. I Twitter followers or whatever I said, I'm happy to post out on social media and, you know, share at the meetups that, you know, this company in Raleigh um, is, uh, they're based out of Raleigh, um, that this company in the, you know, North Carolina Triangle area is willing to take Bitcoin now. And if you're trying to build a fence or, and they do like some other construction stuff, you're trying to do that, I'll share it out to people. So you get free advertising for this, you know, a customer's not normally going to do that. And this also means that I know your merchant fees are 2% plus some base thing. And this is going to be 1% and I can get you, I can literally get it in a matter of hours and it takes no time to set up OpenNode. When I first set up OpenNode, it took me like 15 minutes. I don't know. So I made that little spiel over text and he said, interesting, I'll definitely take this to the owner. Came back, uh, I think like the next day or something and said, so sorry the owner just refuses they like i get the argument i think i think it's an interesting idea but the owner's just not gonna do this but i can get you set up with a bank transfer so there's no fees blah 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 i said thanks man i appreciate the reply i'm gonna look for other contractors here for a bit because i'd rather not build a relationship with the company that makes me have to revert to using a banking system that I literally could not despise more or trust any less. I may get back in touch with you in a few weeks if there seems no other good option, and I hope there are no hard feelings here. I really do appreciate you taking this to the owner. And honestly, the fees of the bank transfer aren't the problem. It's the selling of the Bitcoin, then moving to a different bank, and then paying debit fees to pay, blah, 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 is three slow steps that could be one uh, that only took a matter of minutes. So I really appreciate you trying to make it work, but I think I want to find somebody who will work with Bitcoin directly. And he responded with, I feel the same way. I understand. These business owners can be stuck in the past. Then I kind of just let loose a little bit and we went back and forth. And what's funny is he actually brought up the idea of like the failures of the banks are going to be what push us to a one-unit banking system probably run by the Fed and a CBDC. And I hope the people can win this battle. And I was like, I totally agree. But the thing is, is, the more that we use Bitcoin, the more that we use Rails outside of their control, the more or the less they're centralizing of the system and trying to get us all onto one giant centralized panopticon is simply obsolete. It just becomes irrelevant so and i you know he said i agree or he said i agree we definitely should blah 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 and we just kind of left it at that that was that was where the conversation ended um and it's been like a week i guess um and i've started making a list of like other people that i wanted to reach out to but i've just been busy and it hasn't been a focus like i just knew that okay well i'm gonna have a little bit of a homework assignment and i'm gonna try to find somebody that accepts bitcoin uh but yesterday when i posted this on noster as well um, but yesterday uh, I got a text from him that said that he's been working on the owner and they're going to be willing to work with Bitcoin. And that if I hadn't found somebody, um, hit me up. I think we need to do that more. You know, the the intransigent minority, the you know, we talked about this with Cory uh, Corey Clipson it has a great article in the Swan blog of um 10 million Bitcoiners and about the intransigent minority about the minority that refuses to budge we are not powerless we have economic pressure that we can put on the system imagine if 1 million bitcoiners just started to do that with all of the business relationships that they have and it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean completely refusing to do business with them if they were still the best Uh, The best estimate. And I liked that guy more than anybody else. And I went to like five different companies and nobody would accept Bitcoin. I made that spiel, you know, seven times or something like that. And I I could not find a result. I'd still gone back and or I would have just picked the best company of the group, the somebody I was most comfortable with. And then I would have used it as an opportunity working with them to continue pushing the fact that I really wish they would use Bitcoin. And every time something takes three days or takes a fee or something, be like, it would be a whole lot less if you just accepted Bitcoin. But if we keep that pressure up and try to start building relationships that work with companies long term, find somebody that you trust that you're going to keep working with for some other construction or. That you're going to, you know, this is why the shake your rancher's hand is find out where your meat comes from. Find a supplier, talk to the farmer themselves and get them to accept Bitcoin and then continue to work with them. Build these long term relationships in a local situation and you can start to build a foundation for an economy that can survive this coming collapse. And talk about and even if they just turn it into dollars, they have already integrated. They they become you're still able to communicate with them economically when ACHs start taking two weeks, when debit cards over six hundred dollars start come with start to come with reports and extra fees. When there's new arbitrary taxes on just moving from one bank account to another because they just have to aggressively put capital controls on everything and they're Fishing for fees and uh, you know overdraft everything, money anywhere that they can suffocate from the people that they can bail in from the depositors' accounts and try to keep these things solvent for as long as possible by robbing everybody in the system. That you can give people the way a way around, and if they're already touching Bitcoin, if they're already using it, when the shit hits the fan. It's a very small step to go from that to accepting it directly when the other option doesn't work or the other option comes with huge delays or fees that they now can't deal with, that they don't know what to do with. But if you haven't, if they haven't touched it before then, they're going to panic. They're going to panic and they're going to, they're going to turtle down and they're, it's going to be even harder to get them onto Bitcoin because the last thing they want to do is take new risks when the situation has gotten even more precarious. And I ended the Noster post actually with a favorite quote of mine from a movie, a movie called Spy Game with uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. Really great, really great old movie if you haven't seen it. Um, but uh, uh, there's a quote that Robert Redford's character says. It says, um, "When did Noah build the ark? Before the rain. Before the rain." And I think we've reached that point. And you know, I talked about this in the whole like trying to get people to touch Bitcoin, like get get the um, the Orange Pill, uh, uh, Austin um, uh, Herberts. I think, I hope I got that name right. I might be mixing up two people. Um, but uh, the Orange Pill, and Orange Pill for Bitcoiners episode, I'll have that link in the show notes. Along with Jamison Lop's piece, um, if you want to uh, dive into both of those. Um, but I talk about like, you know, getting people onto Bitcoin and how like I think we've reached this point that it's time to really make a push. Especially with the state that Lightning is in. That for small payments and for quick payments and online things, man, lightning is so easy to integrate. People just don't know. People don't realize how easy it is. And I think we need to start trying to personally use these tools as much as possible and uh, donate or, excuse me, tip bigger in Bitcoin. Buy it back. You, you know, take, take, a, take a hit. You know, spread the love around a little bit. You know, this is how Bitcoin adoption happened really early on, is there were these faucets that just gave people tons of Bitcoin. I think we need to bring that back. You know, when I go out to Clean Juice or whatever, and there's like a number of people there who now I've gotten on uh, with a lightning wallet and I give them uh, I send them tips or whatever is that when I tip normally, I just tip like especially at a place where it's like there's no it's not like a waiter or a waitress. I'm not like sitting down. I'm just going to get food, um especially with the expense of food lately. But you know, I'll just like round up or I'll put like a t- two dollars and twelve cent to make it even. um, and I don't tip a lot, but I do tip a little bit. But when I get somebody onto Bitcoin, I tip ten dollars, twenty dollars, and I buy it back. I refill my wallet. But I want them to be incentivized. I want them to know that how much I value the fact that they are letting me use money that I control, that they are letting me avoid what I think of as a corrupt, nightmarish shitstorm of a system that I want no part of, that I'm constantly forced to use, that I hate to use. That doesn't even serve its customers in the one way it's supposed to like the old lady who could not turn her change into cash or I didn't even I don't even think I finished that story. Is that another dude came in and was trying to get $8,000 in cash and the bank literally turned him away and says we don't keep that much on hand and told him to drive like 45 minutes to a different branch somewhere that would actually have that much on hand. Like literally that's their one job. And now they don't even have bank tellers. The, the bank that I usually go to, they just walled off. The, the thing. It's just an ATM and then like a dude standing inside and like the little center table thing where you usually like sign your checks or whatnot. And they just like, like let, let me direct your help. Where do you need help or whatever? They've just gone fully electronic. So like cash is just like ATM limits are just limits. That's it. That's a scary transition. And that has happened in the last few months that I've noticed this, that I just go to the bank and it's a completely different setup. We are going fully electronic. We are exactly what that guy that I you know texted back and forth with. They want a CBDC. They want everybody on an electronic system. They want everybody on a centralized ledger that they are the masters of, that they can completely surveil, they can completely control, and they are doing everything to crack down and increase controls and increase restrictions. And they're going to incentivize people to do it they're going to do they're going to do another bailout or another helicopter money, and they're going to say you just have to sign up with the CBDC account. If we do not have alternatives already in place, it is going to be ten times harder to get out now. I want to hit a couple more quotes before we finish this one out because I' really, really tangented here a little bit. Um, says, quote, today the outlook for banks remotely interested in crypto is precarious. Bankers tell me that crypto is toxic and the risks of engaging with the asset class aren't worth it. In the wake of the, the Custodia decision, by the way, Custodia was would have been the only fully reserve, like could, could have a 99% drawdown in their deposits bank in the United States. They could not be a more risk averse. It's actually going back. They wanted to set up. A traditional, the entirely traditional banking system as if there is uh, as if we were on a sound money standard and that they could not loan and they could not do anything or fulfill deposits if they did not have on hand exactly the amount needed, which no banks do. And I think the reason they got declined, the reason they got rejected is not because I mean, 100 percent, it's got nothing to do with soundness and risk because they would literally be the least risky bank Possible that you could even create. It is a full reserve bank in a fractional reserve system. I think the reason they got rejected is because of the spotlight they would put on the insolvency and the risk of the rest of the system. It is comically ironic to have a completely insolvent, corrupt political financial system lecturing anybody about financial risk. Like walking into a room with that much irony might knock you down. Back to the quote, in the wake of the custodia decision, obtaining a new charter for a crypto bank looks extremely unlikely. Banking innovations at the state level, like Wyoming's uh, Wyoming's SPDI for crypto banks, appear dead in the water. Federal charters for crypto firms with the OCC also look dead in the water. Traders, liquid funds, and businesses with crypto working capital are nervously examining their stablecoin portfolios and fiat access points, wondering if bank connectivity might be severed with little notice. Privately, entrepreneurs and CEOs in crypto tell me that they sense a regulatory noose tightening. End quote. So, it's interesting to see how people react to this reality unfolding. This has been something that Bitcoiners have talked about for a long time, and that the on and off ramps were always, always going to be the points of control. Now, some will clam up. Some people will clam up and shrink back into the prison the political prison of the financial system, basically too scared to touch Bitcoin. That is not my nature. I do not want to be tied or chained to a sinking ship that is literally blowing holes in itself as we speak. Consider that all of these moves only worsen the situation for them. They are using a financial, a global financial system as a political weapon. And watch it. We're seeing it fail. It completely failed against Russia. It is failing against China. It is failing against the Middle East. And it's going to fail against Bitcoin. They do not have a good track record right now. They, people are trying to abandon their reliance on the system. And the, more, the tighter these controls get, and the, the more awful the regulatory environment, the more people will look for a way out. The only reason I think the system hasn't completely imploded is just because of how vast and integrated their network effect is. It's like if Facebook tomorrow removed the like and the share buttons or something. Like maybe each like and share, rather than just like removed, each one has to be approved by like Local political moderators of, like, everybody has to be, like, KYC'd, and so you're in your own local community, and then everybody has, like, a political moderator of opinion and content, and only those things that they think can be liked or shared out and actually have any network effect or spread. Now, sure, they'd still have billions of users, and it would be hell for a span, and it would seem like there was no other option, but do you really think Facebook would survive in that state? The dollar does have far greater network effects, has far greater centralized chokehold on the economy, the global economy, because activity, particularly in the U.S., obviously, literally has to go through the financial system at some point. But none of you don't use their currency at all. I tend to just want to exit completely like this makes me Want to close my bank accounts? I just wish there was a good option for doing that. Like that was genuinely. I mean, at some point, it might not matter if there's a good option because it's between having a massive headache, volatility risk, and insolvency risk with dollars, or having volatility and headaches in transferring or using Bitcoin. Like a extremely limited network as to where and uh, what I can spend my money on. But you know, in the context of the banking system, I'll use Fold and the Fold debit card for as long as they have banking partners. But if or when those avenues get, off, get cut off from me, I don't think I'll go back. At best, I will have the smallest tether of connection to that system as I can possibly manage. And I'll just deal with the inconveniences and the volatility of being free. You know, There is no security without freedom. And a political prison just doesn't sound like a place that I would enjoy very much. If the price of freedom is volatility and risk, and the cost of getting that, of getting that freedom, is eternal vigilance, well, for where it makes the most obvious sense, I'm just going to increasingly find any path that I can to refuse to do business with companies that don't accept Bitcoin. If a million Bitcoiners did this, we would screw things up really hard. It would be difficult. It would be a pain. We would be limited in what and how we could use bitcoin but at the exact same time we would make a 15% 20% increase in how and where we can use bitcoin imagine a million bitcoiners did this and 10,000 of them were successful in making a business accept bitcoin maybe 10,000 of them were successful every month because we keep doing this we keep that pressure on well how long before the businesses that refuse have now been refused By five Bitcoiners, 10 Bitcoiners, before they begin to see, they feel the amount of business that they're losing because they are not touching Bitcoin. And where we still can't seem to find an option, let's build one. And as Bitcoiners, we need to use the companies that do. And I'm going to try to devote to that as well, to making sure that when there is a Bitcoin option, that I use it. They want us to think that we are powerless, but we are not. We just have to learn the tools for ourselves. We have to take the responsibility of putting pressure on others and commit just not wavering. If everybody else wants to stay in their little political prisons, let them. But do not trade with them if there is an alternative. And when there isn't one, take the time to find one or build one. The only way out of this is to decentralize the options. You know, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go with this fencing company at all but I might simply because they're willing to work with Bitcoin. I'll let you know what I do on that. And I'll share it out to everyone in the, uh, in the North Carolina area. Um, uh, let you know about the company. If you're looking for someone to build a fence or, and I think they do other stuff too. I'll dig a little bit deeper into what all they provide. And I'll, I'll give them a little shill on the show, but I want to hit another quote really quick. um, As a venture venture capitalist operating at the early stage, I am directly witnessing the chilling effects of this policy in action. Founders are reckoning with new uncertainties around whether they'll be able to operate their businesses at all. This is the death of innovation and progress. If entrepreneurs can't make decisions because they do not know what is going to happen, Because the rules can change on them at a whim. The country is just riding a slow death until something changes. It is amazing to me, this goes back to the point that I made earlier, that I argue with statists who talk about how government regulation has to happen, that you have to have an overarching regulator because you need clear, consistent rules for businesses to operate and otherwise you'll just have scams and everybody will cheat and it will be corrupt, blah, blah, blah and all i can think like i cannot imagine a more abundant source of evidence to to the fact to how clear it is that centralized monopolistic government regulation is exactly what creates the thing that they say government regulation needs to fix it creates arbitrary meaningless Inconsistent, destructive rules that give no alternative room to innovate or do anything. It's as if the rules of the road are changing in real time. Imagine if signs on the road that con- just constantly change and the f- whether or not green, yellow, or red meant go slow down or stop. that They're just being updated in real time, just all the time. While you are moving through the intersection, the rules change. Road names change on the fly. What would happen? Traffic. What would happen if, at intersections if the Department of Transportation suddenly released a statement that red lights are suspended temporarily, like the OCC suspending the Fair Use Act or the, the Fair Access Act. But they, they still encourage people to drive safely. And all of a sudden, all the politicians and their cronies are just ignoring red lights and stop signs everywhere. And they're just plowing through uh, the intersections. And then everybody who they run into or who runs into them are the ones that have to pay for the damages. Government-centralized monopolistic regulation is lawlessness. It is the anarchy in the chaotic sense that they claim would happen without them. This is the destruction of the rule of law and the rise of the lord bureaucratic leaders. A political economy is chaos, and it causes people to freeze up. It means that people have stopped thinking about how to build things, about how to improve things, about how to solve problems or make life better, and instead they're focused on compliance. They're nervously waiting for the Fed minutes to tell them what this month's price controls are going to be. They freeze at every point of decision making and refuse to take on any responsibility or take any action without the permission of some completely idiotic regulator who has no idea what is going on and has never made a dollar's worth of value. Imagine having to get permission from AOC on anything related to money, finance, or banking. Can you imagine someone more completely ignorant of anything at all on that topic? It reminds me of of a quote actually from, I believe it's Ayn Rand. I didn't find it um, again in like a cursory search, but um, it's that when you find that in order to produce, I'm pretty sure it's from Atlas Rock, when you find that in order to produce... You have to get permission from men who produce nothing. You will know your society is doomed. Quote from the article. Regulators are effectively picking winners with large, more established crypto firms able to hang on to their banking relationships while newer ones are shut out. This is the result, the inevitable long-term result, of centralized monopolistic regulation. The powerful and the wealthy do fine, everybody else gets screwed and then we silo into a barely a few corrupt compromised entirely compliant mega corporations like coinbase who gleefully do direct integration with chainalysis, analysis as in a copy of their entire books to the irs answer every email request to censor and shut down accounts with no process no due process whatsoever from the fdic the fbi and every other wannabe tyrant bureaucrat with eager overcompliance. Oh, do you need us to freeze all of Tom's funds? Well, we'll just go ahead and freeze all of his family members' funds as well, just in case. Oh, so you need the home address tied to this account? Well, why don't we just send you the entire login history, all the saved IP addresses, all the direct and suspected Bitcoin balances related to this individual, and we'll go ahead and put a hold on their withdrawals just in case, you know, this is something important. Thank you so much for all that you do. Sincerely, Coinbase. P.S. Please let us know if there is anything else that we can do for your lordship. That's what we end up with. And then we complain that, oh God, look what capitalism created. God bless. And then here's the kicker. Here's uh, Nick Carter puts it this is the most important sentence in this entire article. Quote Meanwhile, other jurisdictions are making a bid for their business. That's it. We won't have a world that doesn't have an economy. That doesn't have entrepreneurs, that doesn't have innovation, that doesn't have productivity. We won't. We will simply not have it where the political system treats its citizens like criminals, like pawns, and like slaves, like like cattle to be harvested for the counterfeit class standard of living. The entrepreneurs, the innovation, the productivity, will just go somewhere else. And this is where the geopolitical environment, the the geopolitical pressures start to come into play. Because there are two paths that we can take. We can either heavily restrict and control and surveil and tighten the noose around everything in the economy, or we can innovate and embrace. And the ones that do the former will die and the ones that do the latter will explode especially in an environment where the technology the reason the very reason the restrictions are getting so bad and the controls are getting so tight and the surveillance is getting so serious is because of the breadth the chasm of capability between the state of technology and the state of our political and government institutions and our regulatory systems. What is happening is that the technology and innovation is able to unlock so much productive activity and is able to disrupt and change so many things that the attempts to control it and restrict it and stop it are having to go 10x, 100x as, as hard, which means that letting go would unleash larger and larger amounts of change capacity innovation and productivity it is increasingly going to be like trying to put up a fence to stop an avalanche and with ai on the table and some of the things that it's making possible and the fact that it's integrating it, it it's becoming there we're creating learning models for practically everything that we do this only just got 10x to 100x worse when we're looking 2 years 3 years 5 years out those jurisdictions that choose to surf the tsunami instead of trying to put up a wall in front of it are going to explode in prosperity like we have never seen. This is not bad for Bitcoin. It is bad for the people in the United States. That's it. All this does is shine a light on how insanely valuable, useful, and sovereign Bitcoin truly is and how we genuinely have no alternatives to what it provides, and increasingly, even the facade, the theater of trying to have a banking system that provides those things is falling apart. So, we're just going to close that out here. Um, thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know we went off on like a bunch of different topics here. Um, and a thank you to Nick Carter. Um, I know everybody gives Nick Carter shit, and um, I he's still gone. He seems to have embraced crypto. I mean, maybe, I don't know, he always was kind of in the crypto VC space, even before his kind of, like, social media falling out. But I really enjoyed this article, and I'm glad he put this together. This is a good read, and I think it's important to cover on the show for people to realize where we are going with this. And I also think it's important to remember that even with choke 1.0, these industries still exist, you know? Like, they can put pressure on things, and they can try to control, but... I think the U S the culture in the U S there is still a pushback. There is an increasing unapologetic pushback. And I think that is more of what we need. And I think we need to stand up like, like we need to, we need to put, we need to draw a line in the sand and start to do this. That what I did with the guy with the fencing company and just refusing to do business with them. Not hard. Not even uncomfortable. It was a completely nice, polite conversation the whole time. And there were no hard feelings if that wasn't going to work out. But it appears to have worked. Like it almost makes me feel stupid for not having really done that with everybody I've worked with so far. Especially people who are on board. Like the, the contractor and the people I've talked to, we have conversations about this stuff all the time. But it's just like, oh, it's like a little bit uncomfortable to figure it out and like change our system. So they didn't do it. And I just didn't really worry about it and just kept having the conversation with them. It's like, nah, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to find somebody who accepts Bitcoin and I'm going to keep all of my money in Bitcoin and get the hell out of the financial system. Uh, and I'm going to use it. I, I use it every day. It it makes no sense. Every time I have to touch the banking system, every time I have to go back, when I'm not making sats back on my fold card, any other situation, ACHs, wire transfers, all of it's awful. It's awful. I hate it every single time. And I, it feels like having to write a check to somebody. It just, it's so stupid. And I know I can, I can put, it's not even going to be frustrating for me to, to make that stand and to put that pressure on people. I can do it very kindly and I enjoy it. It's fun for me. So I'm going to do that. I hope you join me. I mean, even if we had like a 99.9% failure rate and everybody who listened to this episode tried it, we still got like, what, 10 people or 10 businesses to accept it. Hey, that's success. That's moving in the right direction. So let's do it. Let's be the intransigent minority. And don't forget to check out that read if you haven't. Um, again, link in the show notes to that and Jamison Lop's piece. With that, um, a thanks to Nick Carter for writing this article. And, um, uh, tallying all these things up, you know, when you have the entire thing laid out in front of you, uh, it's a little frightening, you know, like I know entrepreneurs like being frozen, like that feeling like they can't do anything, uh, is awful is awful. It's the, it, it is the destruction of economic innovation that they feel like they have to get permission for every stupid thing that they do. And it just, it, it locks you in. You're just, you're too afraid to do or try or test anything, which is just a total shutdown of the economic process. It's like trying to do science without thinking new ideas. It's so antithetical to the thing that it's absurd. Which, funny enough, that's kind of what science has become. Trust the experts or get banned, censored, and lose your license. I.e. science is dead too. Wow, what a time to be alive, huh? Um, <laughs> uh, end on a happy note, right? Um, is, I think in this environment... It is also where all the opportunity is, you know? Um it's it's in these huge disruptive moments that the the people who hold the control hold their hold the reins lose their freaking minds. But I think it's an indication that the reins aren't controlling anything anymore. That they are losing that grasp on the narrative, on uh the the economic situation. And I think there is every indication that we have covered at length on this show and through many different pieces that that is exactly what's happening right now. Um, And this will just accelerate their decline. And I just hope they don't take the United States down with it. I hope they don't take the population. I hope they don't take us. I do not want to be on that ship while it sinks. And I hope you get off with me. Um so uh yeah, if you're interested in getting a Bitcoin and this episode was a psychotic little roller coaster of tangents and craziness, um uh go check out the Bitcoin basics episodes. It's a series specifically for those who have not really taken the dive into Bitcoin and want to understand kind of the basic pieces of it and a lot of the services and things that you can use and wallets and that sort of thing. Just I mean literally the basics. That's why it's called the basics series. I highly recommend it. Um, I'm going to make a playlist on Fountain or Spotify or something, uh, so it's easy to link, and I'll let you know. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, Thank you to our amazing sponsors, The Fold Card, Sats Back on Everything, to Swan Bitcoin, uh, the best onboarding in the Bitcoin space, and, of course, CoinKite and the Cold Card hardware wallet keeping my Bitcoin safe and sound. I will catch you all in the next episode of Bitcoin Audible, and until then, everybody... Take it easy, guys. We are fast approaching the stage where the government is free to do anything it pleases while the citizens may act only by permission. Ayn Rand.